Well, here we are again, and I remember being here last year. And like I said, on Christmas Eve, it seems like these years just keep flying right by. This is the last Sunday of 2014. And typically at the end of one year and the beginning of next, I like to preach on some special topics. Normally here on Sunday mornings, we're going through the Gospel of Mark verse by verse. And we're about halfway through what's looking like to be about a two-year commitment. And things are going great. But every now and then, I think it's good to take just a little mini break from our regular uh, study and cover some other issues. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Although we'll be keeping the same theme that we've seen for the past several weeks from the Gospel of Mark. And that's the theme of money. From Mark 10, we encountered three back-to-back passages all dealing with wealth. They have a lot of important things to say, especially when it comes to guarding our hearts against the love of money. Jesus often speaks against not so much possessing wealth, but when your wealth possesses you. And of that we must beware. But in my mind, as I've been thinking about you all, I imagine that some of the passages we have studied have raised some more questions than they may have answered. Jesus doesn't have too many good things to say about money. So does that mean we should shun money? Should we avoid money? seems kind of hard to do, seeing that we, we interact with money each and every day. We seem to be spending money or saving money or investing money or trying to make more money just about every day. I mean, is that wrong? Should we not be concerned about wealth at all? What should, be we, what should we be doing with our wealth? Does God want us to get rid of it? Is it okay to spend it? Can we spend it on ourselves? Is it okay to buy nice things or, or not? Should we be closer to what Jesus told the rich young ruler to do? Just sell everything, give to the poor? I mean, are we in that boat? What should we do? Also, is it okay to invest money? Is it okay to save money for a rainy day? Or is that a form of not trusting God? Do we trust Him to to provide our daily bread? We don't save any bread for tomorrow? What's the deal? And then what about giving? Are we required to give? Is Is that a command? And if so, how much? Should we tithe? What happens when you don't give the required 10%? What if you don't have 10% to give? You see, there, there's a lot of questions. There's many, many questions we could ask, many more about money. And they're all fair to ask. It's not like, not like we're going to answer them all today. But the point I'm making is that money may be a much bigger issue in life, and even in Scripture, than you think. Jesus had a ton to say about wealth, and the Bible overall has a lot to say as well. And we want to study and find out a little bit more. It's one aspect of life that's so prevalent that you really want to get it right. And we as believers, we don't want to fall into the same trap as the rich young ruler. We want to be free from the love of money. But then how should we interact with money? It's something that we have to do every day, so how do we do that? And this is certainly something that's good for you to think about with the new year coming up. Around this time of year, a lot of people make New Year's resolutions. And if you do, you probably are going to include something about money. In the upcoming year, you either want to make more money or save more money or invest more money or spend less money. Maybe you even want to give more money. But the question you have to ask yourself is, are are you a good steward over what you have? Are you managing, investing your money in a way that is honoring to the Lord, that's pleasing to Him or not? Maybe you've been just getting money wrong all these years. Anyway, it's a big topic in Scripture It's worthwhile to study because it's of everyday, real-world, practical importance. And again, it's not like we can study everything the Bible has to say about money. But we're going to take a little break from the Gospel of Mark 
and try and round out some teaching on this issue as we've seen it pop up in the Gospel of Mark. And to start with our time for today, I've known exactly what I wanted to preach on for a while. This is something I've wanted to preach on for a couple years, actually. And why is that? Because all the time I hear people talking about this issue and, and getting it wrong. There's in the church today a widespread error concerning giving money. The Bible talks about making money, spending money, investing money, uh, giving money. The last of these is of particular concern to Christians. You listen to preachers on TV, you think that's all the Bible talks about, giving money. That's all they talk about, giving money. But the Bible does have a fair amount to say about giving. But even in the midst of such biblical teaching, there has propagated a big error that has snared and trapped many people to their own hurt. You've got many people who are going around, they're thinking they're doing the right thing, when in reality they're, they're not. They're thinking they have a biblical practice, but in reality they don't. And you're probably wondering what I'm talking about if you haven't looked at the sermon title yet. And so I'll tell you the issue. I'm talking about tithing. Tithing. I take it you all know what tithing is. The practice of tithing refers to giving 10% of your income to God, to the church, so on. And every week or every month, many Christians across the country, across the world, they write their checks for 10% of their income. And they think they're doing what God has commanded. And they think what they're doing is, is pleasing to the Lord, and, and it may be, but they think they're being obedient, they're obeying the Lord. But if I told you that this was wrong? And what if I told you that there are zero commands for Christians to tithe? What if I told you that in the Bible, no Christian is even described as tithing? It's absent from the New Testament. Tithing is completely absent in the Bible as a practice for Christians. Now, this is not to say that the New Testament has nothing to say about Christians giving. We are certainly called to give. But there's a big difference between giving and tithing. And if you don't understand that difference, well, therein lies your problem. But don't worry, because we're going to try and fix that problem this morning. Now, already I know some of you are confused, you're bewildered, you're, you're, you're curious, you're wondering, you're thinking, wait, this, this doesn't sound right. How can tithing be wrong? I mean, I thought it was in the Bible. Isn't that what every Christian does? Isn't that what we're supposed to do? It's true, many Christians do practice tithing, but that doesn't make it right or biblical. Rather, the whole practice in the church today is derived from a serious misapplication of the Old Testament. And it's made worse by prosperity preachers. But a few of you, you, you may have heard this teaching before, that tithing is actually not a biblical practice for today. But the vast majority of people I've talked to, they've never heard anything like this. They're, they're totally caught off guard when I tell them tithing isn't for today. It goes, everything, it goes against everything they knew or thought they knew. And so it's one reason I want to teach about it because there's so much widespread error concerning the subject. And I tell you what, though, if you get this right, it really does make much more of the Old, Te Old Testament make sense. But at the very least, I'm sure I've got your attention now. And that's good because this is some teaching that you need. This is actually very practical and important for your day-to-day -day lives. At the very least, you're going to want to hear me out because how often do you hear a preacher preaching against tithing? 
It's always the other way around. It's always some preacher advocating or even guilting people into tithing because they're trying to fleece every last penny out of their flock. In fact, if everyone at this church actually gave 10% of their income, our income, our giving would probably triple. So you could argue that it's probably pastoral suicide to preach against tithing. But nonetheless, it's not a biblical practice, and I have to tell you what the Bible says. And it's not what the Bible says about giving. There is a better way, and we need to find that out. So that's what we're going to do. Our goal for this morning, it's actually simple but ambitious. I've got just, just one point for you. It's a one-point sermon. Now, how easy is that? Just one point. It's really easy. I just want to display to you today from Scripture one little truth, and that is tithing is not for Christians today. That's it. Tithing is not for Christians today. Christians are never described as tithing or prescribed to tithe. Tithing was an Old Testament practice that was never designed to translate into the church and therefore, tithing is not for Christians today. So that, that's it. Now, to, to show you that from Scripture, that, that's the ambitious part. I'm going to have to display this to you because I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to see from Scripture yourself. And so we're going to have to do some Bible study. So this is a little different. It's going to be one of those sermons where I really hope you had your coffee. It's going to be a little bit more like teaching than preaching. I'm going to have to take you back to Bible school and just study the Bible. And really dive into what the Bible says. I know some of you are still allergic to serious Bible study. But just do your best to hang in there and, and follow along. Because again, it is really important. This is a, a truth. We need a foundation of, of knowledge of what the Bible says. But that will affect how we live in a very practical way. How you give as a part of your Christian life. So let's get into it. We're going to begin at square one. And just in case maybe you're new to the faith, we're, we're going to ask the simple questions off the bat. And so we'll start with this, you know, what is tithing? Just cover our bases. What is tithing? Can we start with a simple definition? Well, the word tithe derives from an old English word for a tenth. And it, it can refer to any payment of a tenth. So if you owe someone 100 bucks, you pay them $10, that's a tithe. Tithe is 10%. It's pretty obvious. And this is how the word is used in the Bible to refer to a payment of a tenth, an offering of 10%. Tithing was a real practice for the Jews in the Old Testament, but the Jews weren't the only ones who practiced tithing. Tithing was very common in the ancient world. Tithing was known in ancient Athens, Arabia, Rome, Carthage, Egypt, Syria, Babylon, even China. They had a tithe. For them, it was pretty much just like a tax, though. It was a tax on the people of 10%, something like that. For the Jews in the Old Testament, it's a little different. Because you have to remember, Israel was a theocracy, which means their government and their religious structure were the same thing. It was one and the same. So their tithe was both secular and spiritual at the same time. It went to their religious system. Anyway... There are many different types of tithes in, in different cultures in the ancient world. And even for the Jews, their concept of tithing changed over time. After the exile, when they came back, that's when they started adding their own rules and regulations about tithing. It became this very complicated system. But the good news for us is we don't care about all that. We just have one concern, and that's what does the Bible say? It could be fun to study other cultures and their tithing, but we really just, for now, we want to know what did God actually command about tithing? What does the Bible actually say about tithing? 
And so we just have to stick to Scripture. And so let's do that. Moving on, let's talk about tithing in the Old Testament. When did tithing start as a regular religious practice? Well, the answer is after or when Israel formed as a nation. After the Exodus, God made Israel into a holy nation, and he gave them his law to instruct them and to guide their daily lives. And this is where tithing first comes in. Tithing was an important part of God's law given to Israel. So let's take a look at some passages. I'm going to start you off in Leviticus 27. So if you have your Bible, turn to Leviticus 27. And if you're a little new, you need some help, if you want, you can take a pew Bible and turn to page 97. Make it easy for you, just page 97 in the pew Bible. But that will take you to Leviticus chapter 27. This is the last chapter of Leviticus, and that's an entire book filled with regulations from God's law. And at the very end, at the very last chapter, comes the first mention of the word tithe in the Old Testament. And God gives some rules and regulations about tithing. So it may sound a little strange, but let's just read Leviticus 27, 30 through 33, and then we'll we'll talk about it. Leviticus 27, starting at verse 30. It says, Thus all the tithe of the land, of the seed of the land, or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth. For every tenth part of herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth one shall be holy to the Lord. He is not to be concerned whether it is good or bad, nor shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and its substitute shall become holy It shall not be redeemed. And that's it. So we learn a few things about Old Testament tithing here. First off, people, they weren't tithing their incomes per se. They were tithing their harvest. This included crops, fruits, veggies, even animals. The way they tithed animals was a little different though. They weren't giving 10%. They were giving the tenth one. There is a difference. Pretend you're an ancient rancher and you have cattle. And you had nine heads of cattle. How many would you tithe? Zero. Rather, if you had more than that, you would count them, and number 10 would be given to the Lord, number 20 would be given to the Lord, 30, and so on and so forth. And God set it up that way to prevent people from picking their weakest, ugliest cattle to give to the Lord. They just had to pick whatever's number 10, that one's given. Whether it's strong or weak, it's given, and it cannot be redeemed. Meaning, you can't buy it back and just offer to the Lord the equivalent amount of money. He says, here, you could do that with your crops. Instead of giving 10% of your grain, you could give the equivalent amount of money. But he says you have to add one-fifth or a 20% surcharge if you're going to give money instead of the harvest. But that's pretty much it. It's just a prescription for giving your tithe of your crops, your animals. Now, it doesn't say much more than that. We need to keep moving to get a a more of a fuller picture of tithing in the Old Testament. So you see the next book, it's Numbers. Turn to Numbers 18. Just turn to the right and head over to Numbers 18. And it's page 115 if you're still using the Pew Bible. Numbers 18. Okay, so these Jews, they would take their harvest, whether it was plants or animals, and they would give a tenth of it to the Lord. But it's not like God was actually receiving these offerings into heaven. 
So where did it go? You give your tenth, where do you take it? Where is it supposed to go? Who receives this tithe? And Numbers 18 tells us. So look at Numbers 18, verse 21. It says, To the sons of Levi, behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance in return for their service which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. And look at verse 24. He says again, For the tithe of the sons of Israel which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance among the sons of Israel. So we learn here that the tithe went to the Levites. Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel. They're special. They didn't have any inheritance, meaning they didn't have a land allotment, no farms, no land, whatever. They had a few cities and they had a very special job. They were the religious workers. They were the priests, the temple servants. They were in charge of all things related to the tabernacle or the temple, all the sacrifices, the offerings, you know, the whole nine yards. They were the religious workers. But this meant they couldn't provide for themselves. They had no plots of land to farm. They had no day jobs to fall back on. They had no source of income. So how could these, there's a lot of them, how could they survive if they were just serving the Lord 24-7? Well, the answer was the tithe. They lived off of the tithe of the people. Remember, all of these tithes were in the form of food. And this food didn't go to waste. They didn't just dump it on the ground and say, here you go, Lord. You you gave it to the Levites, and they ate it. They fed themselves and their families with the tithe that was received by them. And to take a little bit further, it's also interesting that the Levites themselves were required to tithe their tithe. They received 10% from the people and they turned around and they gave 10% of that to the priests who were very special Levites in charge of the offerings, the sacrifices. And look at verse 26. That's what it says. It says, Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, When you take from the sons of Israel the tithe which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. Verse 28 says that tithe went, goes to the priests. So that's not that complicated. You're starting to get a picture of Old Testament tithing. It's not where you looked at your income and say, oh, let me give 10% of my income. That's not how it worked. And it didn't even necessarily apply to everyone. If you were a blacksmith, there's nothing to suggest that you gave anything. Rather, this applies to people who lived off the land. You're giving, you're giving your harvest or your animals to help sustain the religious system of Israel. You're giving it to the Levites, the priests, help keep the temple running, keep the lights on in the temple, or the candles on, and so forth. So that's, that's the tithe. But that's not the only tithe. There was more than one tithe, which means you're paying more than 10%. There was a second tithe that they had, a second 10% that was to be given. And so now, just turn the page to the next book, It's Deuteronomy, and go to chapter 14. And this is page 144 in the Pew Bible. But Deuteronomy 14. This passage describes a second tithe, which was different and had several distinctions from the first. Deuteronomy 14, and we'll read 22 through 26. It says in verse 22, 
You shall surely tithe all the produce from what you sow, which comes out of the field every year. You shall eat it in the presence of the Lord your God at the place where he chooses to establish his name, the tithe of your grain, your new wine, your oil, the firstborn of your herd and your flock, so that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. If the distance is so great for you that you are not able to bring the tithe, since the place where the Lord your God chooses to set his name is too far away from you when the Lord your God blesses you, then you shall exchange it for money, bind the money in your hand, and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. You may spend the money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink or whatever your heart desires, and there you shall eat in the presence of the Lord your God and rejoice you and your household. And verse 27, don't forget the Levite and the, the one who has no inheritance. So in this passage, we learn, what's, we learn about what's known as a feast tithe. And this tithe, tithe was used for celebrations at the tabernacle or, or later at the temple. And God prescribed for Israel several feasts or celebrations, times of remembrance. And, but who provided the food? These are huge parties, festivals, celebrations. Who brought all the food for these feasts? And the answer was the people with their second tithe. You would bring everything to the feast yourself. Now, if you lived really far away from the tabernacle or for later Jerusalem from the temple, then he says, okay, sell your tithe, take the money, bring it to Jerusalem, and then buy it back, and then there you go. You've got your supplies for the festival. And when you arrived at the gathering, where does this tithe go? Who gets it? You get it. You eat your own tithe. This second tithe was consumed by you. Now, you'd share it with the Levite, with the poor people around you, but you would be partaking of your own tithe, he says. This is part of your offering to the Lord. You are thankful for what God has provided. You're eating it in celebration with the whole, with the whole nation of Israel, and you're remembering the Lord you're worshiping through your offering, which you yourself are consuming. Now, you get the picture, I trust, and you put it together, it means people were tithing more than 10% of their income, if you want to be strict about it. Make matters a little worse, there was a third tithe. Every third year, though. This one's only every three years. There's a third tithe. And actually, just it's next. Keep reading, verse 28. He says, At the end of every third year, you shall bring out all the tithe of your produce in that year and shall deposit it in your town. This doesn't go to Jerusalem. This stays locally. It says, The Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance among you, and the alien, the orphan, and the widow who are in your town shall come and eat and be satisfied in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. This third tithe was a welfare tithe. It went to all the poor and the needy in the land. Pretty straightforward every third year. If you don't get it already, it should be obvious that Israel's tithe was more like a tax. It's just like a tax on the people. And it pretty much was. Again, it's a little different. They're a theocracy, so their government was their religion, their religious system. It was one and the same. And so their tithes were pretty much like their taxes. Their produce went to support the Levites. Those were the religious slash government workers went to support all the feasts and festivals, the holidays. That's the religious and government holidays. And it went to support welfare, the poor and needy uh, in the land. 
So if you really are strict about it and you put it all together, they're given more than 10%. It's closer to factoring in that third year. It's closer to 22 23% every year of what they take in. And keep in mind, all of these tithes were in addition to their sacrifices. We're not going to talk about it, but you know the whole sacrificial system? That was separate. So all the animals and all the grain that they're offering to the Lord, it appears to be separate from these tithes. So each year, the people were giving up to the Lord a lot of their wealth, more than 10%. Now, that's what the law says. Now, do you think the Jews always followed these rules? No, they didn't. In fact, for most of their history, they didn't actually regard the law. And so as you keep reading the Old Testament, we're not going to do this, but as you keep reading, there are many more passages that talk about tithing, but it's almost always in the form of God rebuking the people for ignoring the law and not tithing. And I'll read you one. You've, you've probably heard this before if you've been in the church for a while. It's Malachi chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. I'll just read it for you. God through the prophet says, Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, How have we robbed you? And God says, In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, so that there may be food in my house. And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Ever heard that? Heard that passage before? The prophet, or God through the prophet Malachi, is speaking to the people and he's rebuking the people for robbing God. And how are they robbing God? They weren't tithing. They were keeping it for themselves. They weren't obeying the law. This was their Mosaic law. So he rebukes them. He curses them. But he does give them a promise. He says, if you turn it around and you start tithing, then God will super bless you. He will make you so prosperous, he will abundantly bless you. And many preachers today, they love this verse. And they use it to, in many ways, guilt people into tithing. They threaten them with the same curse, and they promise them the same blessing, that if you tithe, you'll get this massive amount of prosperity from the Lord. But for now, you get the picture, though. This is, we're painting the Old Testament picture of tithing. And it, it's not that complicated when you think about it. There are very clear commands to follow. It was definitely God's will for the people. They were required to do this, to give several tithes of what they had. And it's straightforward. Now, all that being the case, if that's true, then why did I start off saying that tithing is now wrong? That we should not be tithing? If it's so clear in the Bible, why wouldn't we do this? Why don't we do this today? Where's the disconnect here? Why would I say... That remember, we have a one-point sermon, that tithing is not for Christians today. Why would I say that if it's so clear? Well, I'm going to give you the short answer and then a little bit longer answer. In short, we don't tithe today because we're not Jews. We're not Israel. We are not living in the Old Testament theocracy. And we as Christians, we're not under the law of Moses. That's it. That's the whole answer. It's a short answer, but that's it. That's why we don't practice tithing. Now, I know for a lot of you, maybe you don't have the background that, that kind of went over your head. You don't fully understand what, what all those things we're talking about. So I'm going to give you a little bit of a longer answer to flesh that out and give you some explanation. Let's start with this. What is the law of Moses? You familiar with that? 
Technically, the Law of Moses is referring to the first five books of the Bible. And we read some, Genesis through Deuteronomy. First five books. And all of the commands it contains, 613 of them, the Law of Moses. The Jews later came to regard all of the Old Testament as God's law, but you get the drift. I mean, it's the Law of Moses, specifically the first five books. Okay, then along comes Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and you know what he did. Died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, rose from the dead, offers new life to those who come to him. And after that, Jesus started the church. The church began in Acts 2, after the resurrection and the coming of the Spirit. And from then on, everyone who follows Christ becomes a part of, not Israel, but the church. You are a part of the church now. And you are called, if you follow the Lord, not Jews any longer, but Christians. Okay, you know that. But here's the thing. The first Christians were all Jewish, weren't they? The first Christians were all Jews. And so naturally, they kept their traditions. They kept their observances of the law. They grew up on it. That's all they knew. And so when all these Jews came to Christ, you know, Peter, the apostles, the others, they didn't start eating pork right away, if you catch my drift. That's forbidden in the Old Testament law. They didn't start. They kept their traditions and laws. That's all they knew. But the relevance of God's Old Testament law became a big issue when Gentiles started getting saved and they entered the church. And then they all started asking, like, wait a second, what's the deal here? How relevant is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, to us now that we're in Christ? For us Jews, especially for these Gentile Christians, are these Gentiles required to keep the law of Moses if they want to join us in the church? a big question and a big division arose over that and it split the people some people said yes some people said yes the gentiles they must keep the entire law of moses if they are to be saved and enter the church but the apostles led by god stood up and disagreed and they settled the matter in the first church council ever and it's recorded in acts chapter 15 i'll read it for you you don't have to turn there but Acts 15, Peter stands up and he settles it. He says, verse 10, Now therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Talking about the law. He says, But we believe that we, Jews, are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. Talking about the Gentiles. And so Peter is settling the issue. He's making the point, look, We're all saved by grace, working through faith in Christ Jesus, apart from the works of the law. That's true for Jews and Gentiles. The law was never a means of salvation, even for the Jews. Rather, it was meant to be an unbearable burden to crush the people in order to bring them to the end of themselves so that they would cry out to God for mercy. That was the design of it. But now that mercy has come in the person of Jesus, we don't need to bear the burden of the law any longer. We don't need the law any longer. This isn't to say that the Old Testament is now worthless for us Gentile Christians. There's so many functions of the Old Testament law. The law still reveals the holiness of God. It still shows and showcases God's perfect righteousness. God can still use his law to convict people of their sin and to still show them their need for mercy. But we as Christians, we're not under the law 
We're no longer held accountable to the Old Testament law and its demands. The New Testament is very clear that us New Covenant Christians are freed from the law, its demands, and its penalties. It is no longer our burden to bear. And in Christ, instead, we have freedom. He frees us from these things. And many New Testament verses talk about the end of the law's domain over us. I'll give you some examples. You've got Galatians 3. And Paul says, starting in verse 19, the law was given to Israel not to save, but to reveal man's utter sinfulness, and to show man how lost he was and how desperately he needed a Savior. Therefore, in that sense, the law was like a tutor. It shows us our sin problem and it escorts us to Christ, who is the sin solution. The law was our tutor. But now that we've come to Christ, and now that we're walking with Christ, we don't need that tutor anymore. That's what he says, Galatians 3, 24 and 25. Paul says, Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. That's talking about the law. The law was a tutor, especially for Jews. But now, if you're in Christ, you don't need the tutor anymore. The law was designed to show you your sin, to show you how far you fall short, and that you have no hope, so that you would cry out to God for salvation by grace. It's always been salvation by grace. The law was actually meant to show you that, that you need grace and mercy. Salvation has never been by keeping the law And that was Paul's big point in the book of Romans. Romans 3.20, he says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 7, verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? It may never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law. The law doesn't save, but it does show you your sin problem. It doesn't deal with your sin problem, but it shows you you've got a big sin problem. But this, in turn, should hopefully drive you to God for mercy, for grace, because you have an incurable sin problem. And in Jesus, mercy and grace are found. In Jesus, salvation is found. In Jesus, you enter a whole new world, a whole new relationship with God, and the Old Testament law no longer defines that relationship. You are freed from the law. So, let me rattle off a few for you. Romans 6.14, you are no longer under the law, but under grace. Romans 7, verse 6, but now we have been released from the law. Romans 10, verse 4, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 5, verse 18, if you are led by the Spirit, You are not under the law. So for us, the law is over. We're not under it. Do you get that? But you might be thinking, a few of you might be thinking still, okay, but what about that one verse which says that not one letter of the law shall perish or pass away or be overturned? You know what I'm talking about? Well, that's true. But you have to realize there's a difference between being under the law and throwing it out. Jesus himself said he did not come to abolish the law, but he did come to fulfill it. And that's what he did. He fulfilled the law. 
He met the law's demands on our behalf. Because of this, we don't throw out the law, but we do relate to it differently. We don't cut out the Old Testament from our Bible, right? The Old Testament law is still useful for us. It's still good. Like 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, so on. There's a lot we can learn about God and his plans from the law, but we are no longer under the law's jurisdiction, so to speak. Jesus met the law's demands and he freed us from the law. That leads to maybe a new question. If that's true, if we're freed from the law, does that mean that we are now a lawless people? You might think, well, if Jesus freed us from the law, does that mean anything goes? Just go do whatever you want? No. We are no longer under the Mosaic law, but that doesn't mean we're lawless. There is still a law guiding us. It is a new law. The New Testament calls it the law of Christ. The law of Christ. You see what happened? The temporary Mosaic covenant was fulfilled by Jesus, complete with its law. And Jesus brought about an everlasting new covenant. That new covenant came with a new law, the law of Christ. Technically, us Gentiles were never a part of the old covenant to begin with. But now either way in Christ, everyone is brought in Christ into the new covenant with its new law. So we are not a lawless people. We still have a law. It's the law of Christ. But get this point very clear. This is a a point you want to pay attention to. Please understand that by no means does the law of Christ function like the law of Moses. That they're not the same. They're, they're, They're in different categories altogether. The law of Moses was designed to be this unbearable burden that you couldn't keep perfectly on purpose to drive people to the Lord for mercy. But in Christ, we find that mercy and we have freedom. So he also says that his law is a law of liberty. The law of Christ is a law of liberty. You are free. We're not saved by keeping the law of Christ. We're saved by faith. But now, in Christ, he gives us a law that frees us from living in sin. Jesus gave us his law to free us from our sinful ways. In case you're wondering, this explains all the differences between the Old Testament and the New Testament, between life in Israel and life in the church. Jesus brought about many changes, too many for us to discuss. With Jesus came a new priesthood, a new sacrifice, a new temple, a new covenant. With that new covenant, a new law. And life under the law of Christ is different. And I'll give you one example. Try and simplify this. I'm doing my best. This is a vast topic. So I'm trying to simplify it for you all. But in the Mosaic Law, God gave the Israel many commandments. A lot. I'll give you one of them. I already mentioned it. No pork. You can't eat pork. Right? You remember that? Now, why did God give them that command? Well, primarily, he gave them a lot of those commands because he wanted to keep them separate, distinct, and holy from the nations around them. They would be a picture of God's own holiness to the nations. But either way, the command was clear. No pork. Now, are we still bound by that command? It's in the Bible. But the answer is no, we are not. 
This command was fitting in God's eyes for life under Israel's theocracy. But as Peter himself learned, in Christ we are freed from the law's demands. We are no longer held accountable to the law. It has been fulfilled. So we're free. We have freedom. So, eat what you want. Time to have some bacon. And that's what the apostles did. They eventually learned that lesson and they enjoyed the glory of bacon. You know what I'm talking about? One of my favorite foods. But the same thing, you get that? If you get that point, the same thing applies for every single Old Testament commandment. Every one. How many commandments were there in the Old Testament under the Old Covenant? I already said it. 613. And since we are no longer under the jurisdiction of the Old Covenant, none of these 613 apply to us. This includes, keep in mind, the Ten Commandments. We are not under the Ten Commandments. Many Christians still think we are bound by the Ten Commandments, but that's also a part of the Law of Moses, so we're not. It's not saying that the Ten Commandments are not useful, but we are not bound to them. It's not our law. Now, I already know what you're thinking. Because whenever I tell people that we're not under the Ten Commandments anymore, they always get really confused, they don't understand, and they always say, well, so are you saying it's okay for us to commit murder, adultery, and theft now? Right? Is that the implication? Well, no, the answer is no, and that's not the implication. Once again, just because we're not under the law of Moses, that doesn't make us lawless. And once again, we still have a law. It's the law of Christ. The Old Covenant law had 613 commandments, including the Big Ten. But now our New Covenant law of Christ has how many commandments? Two. You've probably heard of them. Number one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And that actually summarizes all of the law. But you get the picture. And so you have two commands. Now, now you have to do some thinking. Do you think murder, adultery, and theft violates loving God and loving your neighbor? Uh, yeah. Okay, so don't do that. You get the point? You see, these two commands, they really encapsulate all of God's laws and all of God's will. And the rest of the New Testament fleshes out what these two laws look like for day-to-day life. But that's pretty much it. There's two commands. And remember, those two commands don't function like the Mosaic law for us. We're not bound by those as if we're saved by keeping them. But they show us how the Lord wants us to live now that we're in Christ. And picture this. We live in California. And so we're held accountable to California driving laws. We're in California's jurisdiction. So under this law, if you pull up to a red stoplight, can you make a right-hand turn? Is that lawful? Yes, yes you can. Do it all the time. But if you move to New York, you would immediately be in New York's jurisdiction. You would immediately be under New York's driving laws. And in that point, it doesn't matter what any of California's laws are. It has no bearing at all. Even though there are similarities between California driving law and New York driving law, you have totally left the jurisdiction of California and you have totally entered the jurisdiction of New York. So differences aside, or similarities aside, there are now differences. One, for example, if you pull up to a red stoplight in New York, can you make a right-hand turn? Lawfully, no, you cannot. 
Now, hopefully this helps you picture what we're talking about. As a Christian, you live in the kingdom of Christ, the domain of Christ. You are a part of the church. You're not a part of Israel. You're part of the church. And so you are under the, the jurisdiction of not the old covenant. You're under the jurisdiction of the new covenant. And true, there are similarities between the law of Moses and the law of Christ. They're written by the same person. Both are reflections of God's character. That's why nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. But don't let this lead you to believe that you are still under the old covenant because you're not. If you're in Christ by faith, you've confessed him as your Lord and Savior, you follow him for your life, well, then he brings you under a new covenant. You've got a new law. You even have a new testament that tells you how to live. And everything has changed. Now, I know this is all way more than you bargained for coming here this Sunday morning. This is a lot. I understand. But let me try and bring it all together here. Because we started off talking about tithing. But then I made the claim that even though tithing is commanded in the Old Testament, it's not for us today. And now... Hopefully you can see why, why that's the case. Is tithing in the Bible? Yes. But where do we learn about tithing? It's part of the law of Moses. It's part of the old covenant, which God set up for Israel. But are we under the old covenant? Are we under that jurisdiction? Do these laws govern how we live? No, they do not. We are under the law of Christ now. We live in the new covenant. So everything the Old Testament says, specifically about tithing, but you can see how this would apply to many things, but specifically about tithing, it's instructive, but it's not binding on us. We are not under these laws. So we don't look to the Old Testament for our specific guidance on day-to-day life, stuff like tithing, the priesthood, that doesn't apply to us anymore. Instead, we turn to the law of Christ, which is revealed in the New Testament. And when you do that, What does the New Testament teach about tithing? The answer is nothing. It has nothing to say about tithing. There's not a single command or prescription for Christians to tithe in the New Testament. And that's our guidebook for New Covenant living. There's not even a single description of Christians tithing in the New Testament. Tithing has passed away for us, just like animal sacrifices, Levitical priesthood, keeping the Sabbath, you know, the whole list goes on. Tithing is absent from New Testament, New Covenant living. And real quick, I'll mention, yes, on two occasions, Jesus did mention the practice of tithing in describing the Pharisees, but as you can guess, he brought up tithing in connection with their hypocrisy. Jesus didn't outright condemn the practice of tithing, but again, remember, that Jesus himself lived under the old covenant. But after his death and resurrection, it all changed. And that's where we are living today. So anyway, when all is said and done, we come back to the one point I made at the beginning. Tithing is not for Christians today. It's a simple truth. That's very simple. But it's so contrary to what most people think that I felt the burden to explain it to you, that you don't have to take my word for it I want you to always see from Scripture for yourself. And so we've labored over some Bible study this morning to show you. Because although it is a simple truth, that has some grand implications on how you live, and especially how you give. 
as a Christian. This means that none of you are bound to give 10% of your income to this church or any church. Now, if you want to give 10%, knock yourself out. I'm not saying that's wrong, but you're not bound as if this is a command, as if God will judge you or frown upon you if you don't give 10%. It's not a law for you. The New Testament has nothing to say about you giving 10%. If you really were trying to keep the law anyway, then you should be giving 22 23%. But I trust you're not. And these rules and regulations are not for you. Laws about tithing do not govern how you should give your money. But does this mean you shouldn't give it all? Does God not want you to give it all to others, to the church? And not so fast. You see, the sermon is titled, Why You Should Not Tithe. It's not titled, Why You Should Not Give. And the New Testament, the law of Christ, has nothing to say about tithing, but a ton to say about giving to others, giving to those in need, giving to the work of the church, and so on. There's a lot to say about free will offerings. In fact, there's a whole new world of giving to learn about now that you are bound to the law of loving God and loving your neighbors yourself. There's a lot to learn about what the New Testament says about giving, how we should give, how we should relate to our money, especially when it comes to giving it away. And so what, what does the New Testament say about how we are to give? And for that, you'll have to come back next week. So we'll be talking about next week. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for your word. Every morning, every time we gather, even every day, our, our goal is to submit to your word. That, that's what we're about. We want you to guide us. We don't want to be guided by you know, just blind tradition or the ways of the world. We seek your word as a lamp into our feet, guiding us each and every day. When it comes to everything, even money, even giving, we want to get it right according to your word. So thank you for opening up your word before us this morning and revealing it to us. It is so clear, and we pray we, we can be greater students of your word. We desire to ri- live rightly before you. We want to glorify you. We want to do what's right. We want to have blessed lives, but we want to do it to your honor. So continue to guide and instruct us as the weeks go by, especially as we learn relating to our money. It's such a powerful force. It can so easily capture people's hearts and lead them astray. But Lord, teach us to master our money before it masters us, that we can use it to your glory, uh, all for your kingdom and for your sake. You've done so much for us through Christ our Savior, and we thank you for his redemption, who brings us to new life, who brings us into a new covenant, who gives us the greater law of love. And we thank you for him. And we want to live rightly before him now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.